Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. May we purify an ocean of worlds. May we free an ocean of beings. May we see an ocean of dharma. May we realize an ocean of wisdom. May we purify an ocean of activities. May we fulfill an ocean of aspirations. May we make offerings to an ocean of Buddhas. May we practice without discouragement for an ocean of eons. All right, so we are finishing with Shantideva. So this is really the, the conclusion of No Time to Lose, Pema Chodron's Commentary, Chapter 10 on Dedication. And, um, you know, it really talks about dedicating the merit. And we in this group have here and there touched a little bit on the notion of merit. It's not something that is talked about a lot in Zen, or at least in, in our lineage, although it appears in the liturgy in various places. Uh, and yet it's, a, it's a central, it's a very important teaching in Buddhism. And you know, as I was reflecting on this merit offering, this merit giving, I was really thinking about it as bringing everyone into your Buddha field or remembering that the Buddha field extends everywhere. Because, you know, one of the criticisms of Western Buddhist practice, of convert Buddhism, is that it can be self-centered, if not self-serving. Right, that, that largely the people who can go to retreats, the people who can um, take time from their lives, already are um, affluent enough right, to be able to do that, to be able to invest time and money, resources into their practice. And that by the nature of that practice, which certainly in our tradition in Zen is so mm, dependent on meditation and on 
silent, intensive, intensive retreats like Sashin, that it can, mm, if we're not careful, become, you know, just another cool thing to do for our own self-improvement. Now, of course, if we're really practicing, everything in the literature is reminding us of the bodhisattva vow, of the need to, to give rise and to, and to strengthen bodhicitta, that aspiration to awaken with and for all beings. This being included, of course, but everyone included as well. And yet, even though the reminders are there, I think it's important in our own daily practice to be really uh, deliberate about that um, inclusivity, if you will, about, you know, always remembering why are we doing this and the fact that we can't really fully do it until we really do it with everyone. And so offering merit is a very, um, well, it's certainly a liturgical way of doing that, but it's, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a way of, of remembering that our being is not limited by this skin, by the concerns of, my, of, our, of each of our lives. And, you know, here Shantideva dedicates a whole chapter, the whole last chapter of the way of the Bodhisattva to that remembering and to that, again, overt offering, that ev everything that I may have gained from this study, from this teaching, from this practice, let me give it away. Let me share it. Let me have it be the fuel, the inspiration, the, well, the engine even of others' practice. And I like how Pema Chodron at some point mentions, you know, how do we know that it's not because of this dedication of merit, that, that people who may seem lost in darkness are not able in, in a moment to shift something. As, as, we, as we touched on before, you know, the, the power, the effect of our practice, of our meditation practice, of our zazen, to never, ever underestimate it, because we just don't know. We just can't even imagine how far it extends, not only in space, but in time. If space and time are a single thing, if, as one of the, the sayings um, offers, you know, that something like, in a moment, there are a, a million or a thousand or a hundred thousand kalpas, T to not assume that even this little ocean gathering is happening just in this moment in time. 
I mean, basically just let's not limit. Let's not limit ourselves in our practice. And whether we believe in it or not, it doesn't really matter. Kind of like the Buddha saying, well, I mean, if you believe in rebirth, then great, do good for your next life. And if you don't believe in it, well, then great, then just do good for this life, for this moment. Just so, our offering of merit, our offering of of goodness. And so, this offering of merit, merit is really very, very tangible, very concretely saying, the goodness of my practice is not just for me. The effects of my practice are not just for me. The fruit of my practice is not just for me. And if you remember, we began with offerings. That's where Shantideva starts off. Before he even gets into any of the, the, the more overt teaching on bodhicitta and then the paramitas, he starts with offering everything that he can imagine everything that he can conjure up in his mind, everything that he can invoke, he offers it away. And now we return for full circle to do the same. And Pema Chodron makes a reference to that saying, the Dharma is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. I've always loved that saying. And it's the way that the teaching of the Buddha was described by his students when they were talking about the Buddha and his Dharma. And so the teaching is good. The Dharma is good. Not even in a moral way, in in a... Yeah, in a moral way. It's 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 good in its truth. It's good in its wholeness. But of course, as we know, that goodness can get covered over. And I think this is how religious teachings get co-opted. How they get corrupted. And so we need to assure its goodness with our practice, with our effort. And so we, we too remind ourselves that it's important to begin well, it's important to work well as we're doing it, to practice well, and it's important to end well. And there is in fact a teaching, and I, and I was trying to find it and I couldn't find it, but there was a teacher, I believe he was a Tibetan teacher, it may even have been Kalu Rinpoche or Patrul Rinpoche, who said something like that, that there were three, three key moments at which um, it was very important to, to, to raise our aspiration to, to practice well. And I believe it was you know, when we first wake in the morning, at the, at the end of the, the day, and the other one, I think, I, I can't remember, was something like when we're about to enter the teacher's room, something like that. But I'm being very vague because I couldn't remember. 
But this did make me think of the student entering ceremony that we do, the simple ceremony, which we'll hopefully do soon, again with, with Eric. Um, I also want to have in place, and I've been giving it a little bit of thought, to a student leaving ceremony. Because what tends to happen is we just kind of drop away. And I always say from the beginning, when somebody says, you know, I'm interested in studying formally with you, and I always say, well, that's wonderful. Um, and I acknowledge that things change. Now, in my mind, once I take you as a student, that's it. In, in my mind, you know, the relationship that I'm forming with you, the, the, the commitment that I have to you and to your liberation just as I have to mine. And so whether you continue as a student or not, in my mind, that commitment cannot be severed even with an ax, as Taoshan uh, used to say. And yet, practically speaking, in the world, in the relative world, you know, things change, people move away. I am working, you know, almost exclusively online. And so, you know, it doesn't work for everybody. But, but I want to begin well, and I want to end well. And so, so let us do that. You know, if at any point any of you decide, okay, this is, this is shifted, and, and I'm looking for something else, or perfectly fine. And let's, let's end well together. Or let's really, ending is a really, let's change well together so that you can take the next step on your path and so that it can be as i said deliberate but conscious and loving just as we're entering into this agreement leaving it and then as i was thinking of this i thought of something else <laughs> that a couple of you brought up and that is letting go right after the last time that we met and we did this um, visualization practice together that came from Shantideva. Um, and then afterward, a couple of you independently uh, raised questions about, you know, what, what does it really mean to let go? How do you let go? How do you know if you're letting go? And so I wanted to touch on that just a little bit. One of you said um, that, that what you saw was that constricting, you know, that limiting your attention, your awareness, made it difficult to let go. It, it, it exacerbated grasping. And I think that is very true. Right? When our attention gets tight, we get tight. We only see what we want to see. We only see what we're able to see instead of seeing the whole field. Right? We just see a, a sliver. And so, so a, a, an attitude, at the very least, a willingness to open is crucial. A softening is crucial. Because we know, you know, you can't just tell yourself, well, just let go. You can't make yourself release. 
And you can't convince yourself, well, you know, I mean, feelings are empty. So what am I holding on to anyway? It's good to know that. It's good to know that feelings are empty of self-nature. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. I often say, well, they're like fog. They're insubstantial. But fog can stop you like a wall just as effectively, right? Fog can blind you. So it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just that it's not quite what we think. And so to know from an absolute perspective, this has no substance, no power other than the one I give it. In other words, it's conditioned. It's very helpful. At the same time, in the conditioned world, in the, in, the, in the world of relationships where we live, there is giving and taking. There's feeling and making meaning of those feelings. And so then how? How do we begin to ease into that release, into that letting go? I would like to offer three steps. The first, to acknowledge. This is no longer serving me. This story, this belief, this attachment, this commitment, this feeling, holding on to this feeling. So it's a kind of, it's a kind of fessing up <laughs> to what is actually going on. Then there's surrender. That is, I would say, the, 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 the crux of it, right? The heart of it, that release of the thing that we're holding on to that is no longer working. And I actually do experience it as a, as a kind of physical letting go, as a physical opening. And this made me think, I had a very, very interesting thing happen. Um, about in back in February, one of um, he's he's not my student, but he he used to be my one of my advisees at Zen Mountain Monastery. James McCowan, some of you know him. He um, coaches the track team at Vassar. We've known each other for many years. I've spoken at Vassar. In fact, I'm doing that tomorrow. I did it before. And so, you know, we have a relationship. He's been to some of our Wednesday evenings, I think some of the Saturday mornings. Back in February, he sent me a blog about an ultra marathon runner who was writing about, she called it something like how to tame a dragon. And it's a, a, a race in Italy, the Tour de Gironde. I don't remember the miles right now. But it's four days, essentially, is what it takes, nonstop. I mean, they take catnaps and things like that, but they don't stop. They don't run the whole thing. Some of it, they're walking, they're hiking. But the elevation is such that it's, <laughs> somebody described it as going up and down Mount Everest three times. So it's, it's perhaps the most challenging ultra race in the world. People do it. She was doing it a few years ago. 
And, you know, people have a lot of ideas about Buddhism and what dragons are. And so it's like there's this moment where you meet the dragon. And she was about to, to drop out. One of her fellow runners says, you know, it's, not, it's no shame. I dropped out a couple of years ago. I'm strong, but it was not my day. And so she's walking away. She goes to the bathroom. She looks herself in the mirror, in the eyes in the mirror, and she says and thinks, I'm strong, but it is not my day. And then she realizes she feels that's wrong. I don't actually feel that. And she starts to think, why do I think this is hard? This is not hard. In this moment, I feel fine. I'm not tired. I'm not hungry. My body is working. It's just my mind. It's just my mind. And so she eats pasta again, because apparently that's all they're given to eat at the, the refreshment stations, and begins. And she says that at a certain point, she saw this glass wall in front of her. And all of a sudden, something happened with that shift when she decided, well, wait a second, this is only hard in my mind, where she kind of saw the, the glass mm, kind of fading or melting in pieces. And then she realized, oh, there's openings. And the thing just began to open up. And then there was space and she could move through. That's how she described it. I read, I read this back in February. Two weeks ago, um, somebody reached out to me because they wanted to interview me for a book that they're writing about this ultramarathon race. I, you know, she sends me some questions. She explains a little bit what they're, they're, they're going to do. We get on the call. We talk. For, for a bit, we have a really nice conversation. They tell me about this very challenging race that they do in the Italian Alps, blah, blah, blah. And then she describes at a certain point, you know, it was like this glass wall. And then I saw this and I was, wait a second. I said, this sounds familiar. I said, did you write about this? And she said, oh, yeah, I wrote a blog post. I said, somebody sent me your blog post a month and a half ago. Now, we didn't know each other. None of us knew each other. And just that morning, <laughs> to add a little bit more to it, just that morning, somebody had sent me an article on synchronicity. <laughs> so it was very interesting. But that image of all of a sudden seeing the wall, seeing not the wall, but the space in between, you know, you, you could say the, the, the pixels, <laughs> the pixels of reality, and that that's what allowed her to move through. That's the experience. I think there is in one of the, 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 the koans something like, mm. I mean, Shugen Roshi used to always say, you know, if, if the thing won't change, you change. But there's something like that with a wall. can't remember exactly what it is, but it's essentially is like you become the wall. It's not pretending that it's not there. It's not convincing yourself. It's not positive thinking. It's at a certain point realizing, oh, there's all this space. 
and you just move through. And you cannot do that while you're holding on tightly. And one other very important thing, it doesn't mean that it goes away necessarily, right? So when you let go of a difficult emotion, you know, something that you've been, let's say, um, an anger or a sadness that you've been harboring maybe for years, to release it, to surrender into it and self-liberate it does not necessarily mean that it's going to go away. It doesn't mean that you're not going to feel the anger or the sadness. But, as we know, our relationship with it changes. It's no longer tight around us like a noose. We can look at it, we can feel it, and we can also put it down. I think that's the difference. We don't get tripped up by it in the same way. So, acknowledge um, and surrender. And then the third, I would say to grieve. And this one is optional, it's not always necessary, but I have talked about this in the past, because I, it's, a, it's a lesson that I feel like I've had to learn more than once in my own life, that those times where I've, by, you know, I'm strong, I don't need, you know, it's fine, it's fine. When I skip this step, it's harder. There's something that is not complete and that, it, that is not allowing me to continue to move through. And so sometimes we have to grieve what we've let, let go of. And if it's not grieving, then at least, you know, saying a farewell. Or at least, a, you know, I'll, I'll see you later. Putting you down, as I said, over here to the side, and I'll see you later. But uh, uh, something that acknowledges the change in the relationship. Right, so acknowledge, surrender, grieve, let go. And so we go back to merit. We dedicate it, and then we wish all beings to wake up, at bodhicitta. And um, Pema Chodron describes that bodhicitta has two, two parts to it. One is that sincere wish that this awakening happens sooner rather than later. And the second part is that, that cultivating, cultivating that growing confidence that it can. And not only that it can, but that it will. Remember when I spoke about the four kinds of faith? And the third and fourth are confident and irreversible faith. And if we don't have these, we, we do get discouraged. And then we tell ourselves, ah, oh, you know, I didn't really want it anyway. But at, at, at heart, of course we want to be at peace. Of course we want to be happy. We want to be satisfied and safe and stable. We want to be free. 
And so I like how Pema Chodron describes bodhicitta and that wish for, for everyone to awaken as thinking as big as possible. Which goes back to what I said before, you know, why cho- shortchange ourselves? We don't have to make deals, we don't have to cut corners, we don't have to rush or force anything. We simply think and act as big as possible. Trusting, having faith that we can do this, and that others can do this. That is why a Bodhisattva never gives up. That is why in the Lotus Sutra, Bodhisattva never disparaging would go to, would say to anyone he saw on the street, you too are a Bodhisattva, you too will awaken, and therefore I would never dare disparage you. And this not giving up, I, I wish I could give that to other people. To, to give that, that knowledge that certainty is not the right word because it's, it's not certainty. I mean, it's, it's, it's confidence. It's a confident faith that your mind is bright, is luminous, is clear and awake. That no matter how difficult it looks, it feels right now, that there's always a way through. And so, as Pema Jodron says, we work to free ourselves of our bias, our prejudice, our arrogance, our selfishness, right? Anything that gets in the way of my fully manifesting who I am. Not just because this is what a good Buddhist does, but because it's the truest expression of our human life. A life that is, that is brimming and unbounded, It's brimming over with that that love and care for ourselves and for others, for for this, this, this whole thing that is reality. So a bodhisattva is is like that that well the faith is irreversible, a bodhisattva is irrepressible, and their vow is irrepressible. And now, as long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I continue, like was to remain, to drive away the sorrows of the world. That's a very famous Shantideva verse. Every time we think, I can't, it's too much, it's too hard, to remember that we already are a Buddha. But even more than that, because we hear that all the time, to remember that someone somewhere is praying for you, is dedicating the merit to your awakening. Someone somewhere is praying that you be safe, that you be kind, that you be joyful, that you be awake. So let's not let them down, shall we? 
Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.